during the service yesterday, was really struck by something that Brian said, his son. He told a story, and I won't repeat it, as I can't tell it. It's not my story. About him and his dad trying to fix a tractor. But he made a really key point that I think does sum up Brother Jim very well. He says something to the effect of he was a uh, one more time kind of guy. Let's try it again. And he equated that to several different areas of his life. And what little I know of him, and I mentioned yesterday, I probably know him among the least of many of you. But I think that's a very fair and adequate thing to say. One more time. We know he was desperate to stand up here one more time. To share the gospel one more time. I know from some personal experience, to work for, what did they say, 24 years at the West End Mission. You don't work in that kind of line. You're not in that, kind of, you're not in that line of work and cut people off. I mean, there comes a time. But I can't imagine how many times he said, okay, one more time. Right. That's characteristic of the population that he labored over. One more chance. Because you just never know. And I was really struck by that. One more time. And so with that thought, I'd like to give it one more try. And I want you to consider trying once more. Turn, if you'd like, to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. We see here a story that's probably graced many Sunday school literatures and vacation Bible schools. This one chapter has two important stories. We see that Abraham is visited by three, well, I could say people, but I don't think they were people. I think two were angels, and I think one was the temporary physical embodiment of God. Abraham is at his tent. I'll just read a few verses in 18. It says, He lifted up his eyes, this is verse 2, and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from his tent door to meet them and bowed low to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. I've mentioned before the customs of that time, and Abraham being the patriarch and being over his tent and his family, patriarchs don't run. If you remember, I mentioned this with the prodigal son. When the patriarch, the father, ran to his son, 
That's a role reversal. And so for Abraham, normally if he saw people far off who were coming, he would have stood with dignity waiting for them to approach. And as he is the one in charge, they might have bowed or paid reverence to him. But here we see the exact opposite. Why? Because I believe he recognized there was something different about these three people. And so he ran to them, bowed before them. Among other reasons why I think one of these individuals was the very embodiment of God himself. If you see at times in the Old Testament, angels would visit and people would bow. They would say, get up. Don't bow to me. And there was no such command here. So I think Abraham got to meet the very embodiment of the Lord. He begs them to come and rest for a while. He kills a fatted calf. He has his servants begin to prepare a meal. This is when we see the proclamation that Sarah would indeed have a child and she laughs in the tent and God confronts her for her laughter and her disbelief. After a short while, they begin to leave. And this is where the story picks up where I'd like to talk about today. You see, the Lord and his two angels are on their way to find out if what they've heard about the sin in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah is correct with plans to destroy it. And Abraham intercedes. There might be multiple reasons that he does this, but I think one of them is he knew that's where Lot was at. I'll just add, I don't think Lot was supposed to be there, but that's a different sermon. So beginning with verse 22 in Genesis chapter 18, let me read the end of the chapter here. It says, So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed wipe away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep them away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare is the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord I who am but dust and ashes, suppose five of the 50 are righteous lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again. But this one, suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. And when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. I'm going to end the reading there and just quickly summarize the following chapter. We see the two angels that were with the Lord do, in fact, enter Sodom. 
And they apparently didn't even find ten who were righteous because they destroyed the entire city. They saved Lot and his wife and his two daughters. And again, that's a whole other probably series of sermons of them not wanting to leave and so on. But what I'm really struck by this morning and what I'd like us to remember, we talk about trying just one more time. Look at what Abraham did. Abraham stood in between God and Sodom and asked him repeatedly, what about 50? What about 45? What about 30? Nay, 20? If it was just 10. In fact, as I count it, I count eight separate tries. Will you indeed swipe away, sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Number one. Then he says, suppose there are 50 within the city. Will you then sweep uh, away uh, the place and not spare it for the 50? It's two. The third is more of a statement than a question, but it's written as a question. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? He's arguing with God. Let's not lose place here. Then he goes on. Behold, what if there's 50 and 45 and so on? Eight times he tries to intercede on behalf of an entire population saying, please do not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. He tries and he tries and he tries. Was the Lord angry with him? I don't think so. I've mentioned this before. I will mention it again because it has been such a personal and impactful experience in my life. Sometimes we can feel bad questioning, asking why. It's okay. God understands who we are. And in my feeble, worldly mind, I do not understand the ways of God. And he knows that. It's like a little child who genuinely wants to know why wants to understand, but just can't quite get it. Now, there is a difference if all of us have been around enough children to know that sometimes even young children just poke at us to annoy us. Why, 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 why? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the genuine desire to understand. Mommy, daddy, aunt, cousin, whatever. I don't understand. Help me understand. If we come to God in this attitude, I believe he will respond like a good father who will try over and over and over again to help us understand. Abraham tried eight times. Let me flip over to Luke. And I'll tie this together, so hang with me. Luke 18, verse 1. Now we have Jesus speaking in a parable. Luke 18, verse 1. And he told them the parable to the effect that they ought to always to pray and not lose heart. Now real quick before I continue reading, I neglected to mention, if you go up a few verses, what does Jesus just get done talking about? Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't think that's a coincidence. So he gets done talking about them. He says, as it was in the days of Noah, I'm going to go back up, forgive me, I'm going to go back up um, in, in chapter 17, verse 28. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be 
in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on his housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, the vultures will gather. Then he starts telling us this parable. So understand the context. Jesus Christ is telling us that at some point in life, when the great day, when the time has been fulfilled, a time that only the Father knows, when He is sent back to earth again to gather all those who remain, there will be one who is walking and one who will disappear. There will be no turning back, as Lot's wife tried to do. There will be no time to escape the great day and wrath of the Lord. Those who are not saved will be burned up in a lake just like Sodom and Gomorrah. And those who know the Lord will be carried away to everlasting paradise. This is the dichotomy. There is not time to make a choice when it comes down for the end to happen. That's it. You will not get to try one more time when that trumpet sounds and God comes back to get his own because you will be gone. Either in punishment eternally forever or with him in paradise forever. So while there is time left, however long that is, And trust me, I am not upset by the fact that it's taken some 2,000 years since Christ said this, and I'm going to say it again. I do not know. And it doesn't bother me that people have been saying for thousands of years, it could be tomorrow, it could be tonight. Because it is just as true now as it was then. At some point, you will not get to try for salvation again. So he leads from that into this. Let's start over again in chapter 18. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. Don't stop trying. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. And for a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not come beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. 
Nevertheless, the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This parable sets up the exact opposite, a paradox, if you will. He tells us of a judge who doesn't fear God and doesn't care about men. Okay, a bad person. Let's just make it really simple to understand. Someone who is not good. Yet even someone who is not good can eventually be worn down to do what is right. By the constant pleading of a widow who comes and says, help me, help me, help me. And the point of this parable is, if someone who doesn't fear God and has no desire to do righteousness to mankind will eventually do the right thing, what do you think God the Father is just waiting to do? The right thing. And so we should keep trying again. If you have a need in your life, you need to go to the one who gives all things willingly, and that's Jesus Christ. Try again. Don't stop trying. What about the persistent neighbor a few chapters before? Luke 11, beginning with verse 5. Here's another story. Right after the Lord's Prayer, interesting placement. He said to them, Which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend. Yet because of his, my version says, impudence. Better translation there would be persistence. He will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Wow. How many of us have sincerely asked the Lord for something once, didn't get it, and gave up trying? That's the point of what I'm trying to get across today. And very specifically, I'm talking about your very souls. Our God wants to know you. He wants to save you. He died in order to do that. Yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. There is a key to this. Sometimes it is persistence. So I'm sharing with you one more time the gospel. If you were here yesterday, you heard it. 
I'm going to summarize a little quicker. We are horrible, sinful people who do not do anything right. Nothing. We are born that way, and we only make it worse as we get older. We lie, we cheat, we steal, we do things we ought not to, and if we're not physically doing them, we certainly are thinking things that we ought not to think. That is the state of nature. That is who we are. We are fallen individuals. We are not good. There is nothing good in us. And the only rightful, just thing to be done for us is to punish us for what we've done. And you can say to me, well, that's not very fair because I can't help it. Sorry about your luck. It is just. Whether you intend to or not, if you do the wrong thing, punishment may follow. That's in our law code today. So whether you have intended to shun God, whether you have intended to sin or not, the very fact that you have means that you are separated from God who has never, ever done or thought anything sinful. The distance between us and Him is immeasurable. We cannot do anything good. We do not deserve justice at all other than to be sent to hell. That's it. That's our state. And if that was the end of the story, it would be a very sorry lot, wouldn't it? It's kind of like I said yesterday. If it wasn't true that Jesus Christ came and died on behalf of my sins and took my penalty, then the fact that we're all here today in church, the fact that I stand before you and preach, the fact that Brother Jim gave his life to his Lord so many years ago, and every Sunday he had a breath, stood before you and preached the truth, it would be completely pointless. But it's not because Jesus Christ was sent here to take my sin and your sin to die for us. To take the punishment that I deserved. And the only way that that is applied to me that I can truly be forgiven is that the Lord convicts me of my sin, I truly seek repentance, and I believe in faith that He died, was buried, and resurrected for my sins. End of story. It stops right there. There's nothing to add to it. We do not add baptism. We add no works. We add simply our faith in Him, the finished work of Jesus Christ. I'm curious today. I'm going to be bold and ask a few to raise their hands. I know of one specifically, but I'm sure there's others. When we talk about getting saved... How many of you had to try more than once? <laughs> I didn't. So one time. Then I got on my knees. And I knew. And I begged for forgiveness. And for the first time in my life, I actually believed. I actually admitted that I had been sinning against him my entire life. And in that moment when I stood up, something was different about me. It has been different ever since. I am not perfect. I never will be perfect until I am with him. 
But something that night changed within me. And I will tell you, brothers and sisters, it is hard sometimes for me to understand how you can be in a state like I was and not get saved. Listen closely to what I'm telling you now. But for many of you, you had to try again. Now that sounds like works, doesn't it? You have no idea how many years I've struggled with this concept. Because it sounds like, well, I didn't cry enough, and therefore God didn't forgive me. I didn't ask for forgiveness enough, therefore God didn't forgive me. I wasn't on my knees. I wasn't, I wasn't. It seems like it can be a matter of works, but I can tell you, brothers and sisters, most assuredly, whether you cried that night or cried for a week straight on the altar, or you came over and over again for a year to God and begged him to forgive you, it's not about your works. It's about you recognizing your state to him and trying one more time saying, God, forgive me a sinner. And the point that I am trying to make here very sloppily, is that over and over again in Scripture, we see people who are willing to keep trying to get what they know that they need. And if you do not know Him, if you have not been saved by Him, if you are not the new creature that the Scripture says you will become the moment that you are saved, then you need to try again. You need to try again. If you're listening today and you're not saved, will you try again? If the Spirit is convicting you, and I've preached on this, I hope you understand what I mean. If you don't, you will when you experience it. If the Spirit of God is convicting you for the sins that you've done and you're not saved, will you not try again to go to Him to be saved? Now, here's the more dangerous spot, and I've mentioned this a couple of times in the last few weeks. Maybe in times past, you have experienced the conviction that I've preached on over and over again, and for whatever reason today, you don't feel convicted. And you're not saved. It's a very dangerous spot to be in. And what I am telling you today is if you do not feel that conviction, if you do not feel the Spirit of God knocking on your heart, then what you need to do is you need to try again and tell Him, Lord, convict me. Help me to want you. Help me to need you. I don't know your hearts. I don't know who's saved and who's not. I can only tell you about me. And I can only reflect what I've heard you say and what I see in your lives. And so some of you, I have good confidence, know the Lord. I will be honest with you. There are others who I think do not know the Lord. What are you doing? Will you not try again? If you feel moved to do it, then you ought to. If you do not feel moved to do it and you know that you're not saved, don't give up. Try again. 
Be like Abraham. If it takes you eight times to stand before God and say, please, Lord, save me, or if it takes you 80 times, you ought to do it. Do not give up. Try again. If it's like the neighbor, if you just are going to be persistent, the Lord wants to answer. Or like the widow who didn't lose heart, but went to the judge at every opportunity and said, avenge me. These are examples that we need to try one more time. Hebrews 11 and 6 says this, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Do you want to be saved? Ask yourself. If the answer is yes, because you're not, then you need to try to find him again. If some of you are cold and distant because in the past you have been drawn to him and you have not been saved and you know that you're not and you know that you don't feel led to, then you know what you need to do? You need to pray more desperately perhaps than anyone else. And brothers and sisters who are sitting here listening to me, who know the Lord, you need to try again to pray for those who you know who don't know the Lord. I can pray for you, but it will not save you. But we have a power. We have a God who knows us, a God who loves us. We have a spirit that dwells inside of us who will help us pray when we don't know what to say for those who we need to pray for. I have no problem with taking prayer requests. I love prayer requests. I love that we get to share that before we start many services. But sometimes it's like the hospital record. Are we praying for those who need to be saved? Are we encouraging them to try one more time? Are we considering the fact that God will come back like a thief in the night and you will not have a chance anymore? Are we considering the fact, and this is so cliche, it's like we don't even really realize it, that you could drive home and never make it? Now, I'm not trying to put unbelievable fear in you so that you come down here, repeat a few words in a platitude or shake my hand. I'm trying to put the legitimate fear of God in your life so that you will try again to know him for the first time. And it is our responsibility as those of us who do know him to encourage and help those who don't. Whether that means that the Lord leads you, and I'm very Listen, I'm not throwing that line away. If the Lord leads you, then go talk to somebody. In a service, after a service. If the Lord leads you to grab them by their hand and take them to the altar, then you need to be obedient to that. Now listen, I really don't know this morning if any of that made sense. But what I do feel is that there are several here 
who are not saved. They have never experienced the forgiveness of sins that is absolutely required to have a relationship with God now and forevermore. And I am afraid that some of you know this and have given up trying. Don't stop. Try. Do what Brother Jim modeled for us. Keep trying. Push past the pain that he did to come stand here and preach. Swallow the pride of the one who repeatedly didn't do what they were supposed to do so he could help them get out of poverty and homelessness and try again. Swallow your pride. Swallow whatever it is that's between you and God and try again. We're going to give you an opportunity to try again. You can do it at your seat. can do it down here you can do it physically on your knees but you must do it spiritually on your knees see there's the difference 